0: We're so grateful uh, to kick off this event. I hope you enjoy these resources. And more importantly, I hope we all learn how to handle the scriptures in a way that glorifies our great God and Savior, and that we pray his word. That's what Dr. Winnie is here to show us. Dr. Winnie is a professor at Southern Seminary. He's written many wonderful books, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, Simplify Your Spiritual Life, uh, Family Worship, and his latest on praying the Bible. And tonight he's here to teach us that very thing. So would you please welcome Dr. Whitney. Thank you, Jeff, and thanks everyone for coming out. It is a great honor to uh, speak at the first uh, TGC Houston uh, event and to be back at this church where I preached yesterday morning. Uh, We're going to be in two sessions tonight. Uh, The break will come not at the midpoint. The first session will be a little bit longer. Uh, I presume if you if you came knowing it was supposed to be from six to eight, you're planning to stay for the whole thing. But if for whatever reason you realize you can't stay for the whole thing, I plead with you stay for the first ten minutes after the break. It's the most important part of the whole night. So please do that, and then if you have to go, uh, I'll certainly understand. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to try to limit the time because I have to leave as soon as possible when this is over to make it uh, to another engagement at nine o'clock. So and it's at least half hour away. So you'll you'll. Forgive me for having to uh, leave quickly for that. Um, We're going to talk tonight about the second of the two most important personal spiritual disciplines. There are personal spiritual disciplines, those we practice alone, and there are interpersonal spiritual disciplines, those we practice with the church. These practices found in Scripture that... uh, uh develop closeness to Christ and conformity to Christ. And so even though we're going to be talking about the two most important personal spiritual disciplines, I want to at least give lip service to the interpersonal spiritual disciplines. Because uh, when talking about spirituality, and that's, that's my field, I'm a professor of biblical spirituality, the only uh, one in the SBC. Uh, very, in fact, very few seminaries have a position exclusively in spirituality. But that's my field, and everybody's spiritual today, right? I have a survey from the front of USA Today where a majority of atheists say they are spiritual people. Uh, I mean, try to find someone who will say, well, you know, I'm just not very spiritual. But spirituality is almost always spoken of in terms of individual terms, private terms. Uh, in the Bible, the interpersonal uh, spiritual disciplines are at least as important as the personal spiritual disciplines. I've written a book that's been mentioned, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, but I've also written a book called Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, about those practices we do together that develop not only congregational uh, Christ-likeness, but also develop our individual Christ-likeness and closeness to Christ as, as a result. So we're to pray alone. We're also to pray with the church. We are to get into the Word of God individually. That's a personal spiritual discipline. But we're also to hear the Word of God read, preached, taught with the church. That's an interpersonal, congregational, corporate spiritual discipline. We're to worship God alone. We're to worship Him with the church. Some of the spiritual disciplines are by nature individual. Solitude, by definition, is. Keeping a spiritual journal, you do by yourself. Fasting though not always, but usually is practiced alone. There are some spiritual disciplines by nature are interpersonal. Fellowship, for example, necessarily requires other believers. I don't mean just socializing, talking about news, weather, sports, work, and family, which is what usually passes for fellowship. Socializing is good and healthy and normal, but it's not koinonia. It's not biblical fellowship. That's talking about God and the things of God. And we do much less of that, I think, than we realize even at church. That's another entire conference. I don't want to get, get too far afield with that. Uh, the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But we're not to serve the Lord's Supper to ourselves and our private devotional life. That's given to the church. We should experience that with the church. <clears throat> and we all tend to lean a little more one way or the other some of us really enjoy being alone we say you know i I really profit from my personal spiritual disciplines frankly more than i i get from things at the church and i'd be very happy to take my personal spiritual disciplines and go off and be an evangelical monk an evangelical nun i don't need that ungodly half-committed bunch down at the church they only slow me down anyway But the majority of our church people who are faithful attendees probably would lean a little more the other way, those who are more energized by being with people and uh, don't like to be alone so much, and the people who would say, you know what, if I'm willing to come out to a a, a weeknight conference at a church, and I'm at the church pretty much every time the doors are open, and, and I profit from that, I'm pretty sure in the long run that will compensate for the lack of a personal devotional life, and... No, it won't. We we need both, although we're all inclined a little more one way or the other. We need both because the Bible teaches both, and Jesus practiced both, and he is our example of walking with God. He's much more than our example. He's our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Judge, our Substitute, but he's not less than our example of walking with God. And although Jesus got alone to pray at least four times in the Gospels, it says Jesus got alone to pray. So should we, therefore, to follow his example? Dr. Luke tells us in chapter 4 of his gospel, as his custom was, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So though he had all these people to heal, this teaching to do, this messianic ministry to fulfill, and he knew he had a very brief time to do that, nevertheless, one day a week he would pull aside from that and gather with other believers and sit and listen to some dusty old rabbi preach what must have been to him a boring sermon. I mean, if anybody ever had a pass on going to church, it'd be Jesus, right? The only preacher can appreciate uh, what I mean when I say he must have often sat there thinking, boy, I could do better than that. Boy, he just butchered that text. Oh, yeah? How do you know? Well, I wrote it. (laughs) But he was there because it was the appointed time for the people of God to gather and he wanted to be numbered among them. He didn't want it to be said, "Oh, you're the Messiah," huh? Then how come when the people of God are gathered, you're out here doing your own thing? So he was there, identifying himself with the people of God when it was the appointed time together. But tonight we're going to be talking about one of the two most important personal spiritual disciplines. And I at least want to give lip service to the interpersonal spiritual disciplines, which are at least as important as the personal spiritual disciplines. The most important is the intake of the Word of God. It's more important for us to hear from God than for God to hear from us in prayer. And with the most important of the personal spiritual disciplines, there is an almost universal problem. And it looks like this. People, the most devoted daily Bible readers will take a Bible, read uh, their Bible, read a chapter, read three chapters, however much it is, and then as soon as they finish reading their Bible, if pressed, most days they would have to admit, why? Yeah, I don't remember a thing I've read. <laughs> In fact, some days you'd have to say, I don't remember where I've read, right? As soon as we close the Bible... And we tend to think, well, I guess it's me. I'm just a second rate Christian. I never had a good memory. I never had a high IQ. I never had a good education. That's why I can't remember what I read in the Bible. I have some 22 year old geniuses in my classes at the seminary who have the same problem. The problem is not you, it's your your method. And the method of most Christians is to merely read the Bible. And there's a simple, permanent biblical solution to that problem while you don't read the Bible. But unfortunately, I don't have time to talk about that tonight. Maybe next time I can do that, but that's another three hours. But if it were within my power to change one thing about the devotional lives of every Christian in the world, it would be right there. But I can't talk about that tonight. But I'm here to talk about the second most important personal spiritual discipline: the intake, uh, excuse me, not the intake of the Word of God, but prayer. And there is an almost universal problem with prayer. And it looks like this. When we do pray, we tend to say uh, the same old things about what? About the same old things. And when when you've said the same old things about the same old things about a thousand times, how do you feel about saying them again? Bored, yes, thank you. I think it takes courage to admit that, that we can be talking to the most fascinating person in the universe about the most important things in our lives and be bored to death. Not because we don't love God, and not because we don't love what we're praying about. I would contend that if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the problem is not you, rather it is your your method. And the method of most Christians is to say the same old things about the same old things. Now, I made that very important caveat. I said, if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, for there is no method that will enliven prayer for someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. But anyone indwelled by the Holy Spirit has two people living in their body. You, of course, and another person, not a force, but a person who is the Holy Spirit. And whenever the Holy Spirit indwells any flesh and blood creature, he brings with him his holy nature. When you came in that door tonight, none of you paused at the door thinking, now, hmm, now which nature should I bring in with me tonight? Maybe I'll bring in my alligator nature tonight. No, you you don't have an alligator nature. You have only a human nature. And you bring your human nature in with you wherever you go. In the same way, wherever the Holy Spirit goes, he brings his holy nature with him. And when he indwells any flesh and blood creature, you have new holy hungers you didn't have before. You hunger for the holy word of God that you used to find boring or irrelevant. You hunger for fellowship with God's people. Not mere socializing, but you hunger to talk about God and the things of God with the people of God. When I was pastoring, which I've done longer than I've been a professor, One of the first things I looked for after I would baptize someone was when they had the miss church, did they miss church? You know what I mean? Or could they be content to live their lives apart from the people of God? No one indwelled by the Holy Spirit can. You you crave koinonia. You, you, You have to talk about God and the things of God, the Word of God, living out the Christian life with others who share that life because you realize that a great, way in which the Spirit of God ministers to you is through his people. And you can't bear to be apart from that. To cut yourself off from the people of God is in a great measure to cut yourself off from the ministry of the Holy Spirit to you. And you can't bear that. So you hunger for fellowship with God's people. When you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you have holy longings you didn't have before. You long to live in a holy body without sin anymore. You long to live with a holy mind, no longer subject to temptation ever again. And you long to live in a holy and perfect world where there's no more traffic jams and no more racism and no more terrorism and no more pollution. And you long to live in that holy and perfect world with holy and perfect people, what Jonathan Edwards called a a world of love. And you long to be there and at last see face-to-face when the angels call holy, holy, holy. And that's the heartbeat in all those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, whether you're nine or 99, you may be nine years old, but if the Holy Spirit is there, those longings and hungerings and, 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 and uh, aspirations are there, because he is there. And a person may be 99 and their heart encrusted with the traditions and experiences of the decades, yet pulsing underneath that is the evergreen, ever fresh work of the. Holy Spirit, always causing these holy hungers, holy longings. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does in all those in whom he dwells, whether they're nine or 99, is he causes them to want to pray. Both Romans and Galatians tell us that the Spirit of God causes us. We don't don't merely choose this. He causes us to cry out what? Abba, Father. We have this new Fatherward orientation, this heavenward orientation when we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. If we're nine years old, it's going to be expressed in nine-year-old ways, but those things will be there because He is there. And He causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, all those indwelled by the Holy Spirit really want to pray. And yet, while that desire and that hunger and that longing is pressing against one side of your soul, colliding with that is our experience. And our experience says, yes, I believe in prayer. I want to pray. I try to pray. But frankly, when I pray, it's boring. And when prayer is boring, you don't feel like praying, do you? Because you know you're about to do something that's going to be boring. And when you know you're about to do something that's going to be boring, you don't feel like doing it, do you? And when you don't feel like praying, you know what you don't do? You don't pray with any fervency, with any consistency. And I believe that's an almost universal problem that people tend to say the same old things about the same old things. With the result that we become like that little girl who used to go to bed every night saying that same old memorized prayer, now I lay me down to sleep. And one night she thought to herself, why does God need to hear me say this again? So that night she just recorded her prayer when she went to bed, and then every night thereafter she just prayed the recording when she went to bed. Now, you're laughing, but you have prayer recordings in your heads. They're just a little more sophisticated than that, right? I'm in a different church just about every Sunday all over America, and I hear the same prayers all over our country. Lead God and direct us. Bless the gift and the giver. Hide the pastor behind the shadow of the cross. It's like beads on a string, right? Here's a red bead. Here's a green bead. Here's a blue bead. Now, maybe it's totally different in South Texas. I don't know. Maybe it's the blue bead, then the red bead, (laughs) then the green bead. It's the same prayer, right? I'm sure that in your church or in your small group or somewhere in your background, there are people that when they are called on to pray, you could give their prayer. If you had to, right? If that person was called on to pray before the offering or at the end of the class or whatever it was, and they dropped dead of a heart attack in the middle of the prayer, there are eight other people who could stand up and finish their prayer because they've heard it so many times, right? Our hearts don't soar when we hear that kind of praying. We sort of politely endure it, you know, but we don't know what else to do. We just soldier on. It's not satisfying for anyone. We don't know what else to do. It's what we've learned how to pray. I pastored a church in the suburbs of Chicago for 15 years. One Sunday morning, the ushers came for the offering, and one of the ushers began to pray. And as he prayed, I could hear someone else talking. And I thought, well, surely this person will be quiet in just a moment. And as it continued, I realized it was a child. And I thought, well, surely this child's going to, some adult's going to get this child in line in just a minute here, you know. But as it continued, I'm on the platform, and I opened my eyes and looked. And there on the second pew was the five-year-old son of the usher who's praying. And what do you think that little boy was saying? Exactly what his daddy was saying. Not repeating after him, but in unison with him. You know, like we'll say the Lord's Prayer in unison sometimes, only this was Dad's Prayer that they were together saying in unison. Now, how could he do that? It's because every time Dad prayed, whether it's over the Lord's Supper table at the church or the Supper table at home, it was the same cotton-picking prayer. That's why. This kid has only been in the world 60 months. And he's already memorized everything his dad prays when he prays. And you laugh, but there are people in your life, right? When they pray, you pretty well memorized their prayer. And it's boring, and it's unsatisfying, but we don't know what else to do. That's the way we learn to pray. And we pick phrases that we like and sort of string it together, whether consciously or not, as our own prayer, and that's the way we pray. And it's boring. And when prayer is boring, you don't feel like praying, do you? If you don't feel like praying, then you don't pray. With any fervency, with any consistency, oh, you might grind it out for five to seven minutes, but that feels like an eternity. Your mind is wandering half the time, You'll suddenly come to yourself and realize, now, wait a minute, where was I? I haven't been thinking of God for the last several minutes. And you'll come back to that mental script that you've said so many times. You pick it up again. But because you have said it so many times, almost immediately your mind begins to wander, because you've said it so many times. And we tend to think, I know prayer shouldn't be like this. I hear stories of George Mueller and these great people of prayer, and it's not like that for them, but it is for me. I guess I'm just a second-rate Christian. I go to conferences on prayer. I hear sermons on prayer. I read books on prayer, and I go back to prayer, remotivated, revitalized. But basically, it's just saying the same old things about the same old things, but with just a little more oomph behind it for a while. But pretty soon, that evaporates away, and we find ourselves again, back saying the same old things about the same old things, bored as always, our minds wandering as before, and we feel now even guiltier. I must be a second-rate Christian. I know prayer shouldn't be this way. I want to pray. I believe in prayer. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Because logically, the response would be, well, then just stop it. Quit praying. My goodness, why do this to yourself? If it's that boring, if it's that miserable, if your prayers aren't being answered, just give it up. Well, anyone indwelled by the Holy Spirit would be horrified at such a suggestion. The preserving work of the Holy Spirit causes us to hunger for God and and to cry, Abba, Father. No matter how unfulfilling our prayer life is, no matter how few prayers are answered, we cannot imagine not praying. That's the Holy Spirit keeping us, preserving us. But it's not satisfying. Our experience isn't, but we don't know what else to do. We say the same old things about the same old, thing, old things. But the problem is not that we pray about the same old things. In fact, I would contend that to pray about the same old things is normal. If I sent you out right now to pray and I didn't give you any instructions, I just said spread out somewhere in this property, get by yourself and pray for about 10 minutes, I'm convinced nearly everyone here would pray about the same six things you'd pray about your family, some broad general sense or another, you you know, spouse, children, grandchildren, parents, siblings, singles might pray to be married, have a family, but it would be some generally family-related prayer. You'd pray about your future, perhaps some decision that's before you. Do you make that job change or do you not? Should you make that move or should you not? You'd pray about your finances, God's provision for those bills that car, or school. You'd pray about your work, and students would pray about their schoolwork. It's normal. You would pray about that place where you spend most of your waking hours during the week. That makes sense. You'd probably pray about your church, <clears throat> some ministry you have teaching, music, or some Christian concern that you have, perhaps the, like you were praying last week over the election and things like that. And maybe just someone you're trying to share the gospel with down the street or at work. And then you'd pray about the current crisis. Statistically, I'm told each of us goes through a pretty significant life crisis on the average of every six months or so. If that's true, I'm about 10 years ahead right now. But it's the sort of thing that when you go to pray, you don't need any prayer list to remember this. It's on the front page of the headlines of your life. You're thinking about it all the time. So when you go to pray, it's right there. Well, if your prayer life is dominated by these six things, cheer up. You're normal. Because these six things are your life, right? If you don't think so, how much of your life has no connection whatsoever to your family, your future, your finances, your work or schoolwork, your church or your ministry, and the current crisis? That's your life, right? And thank the Lord, these things don't change dramatically very often, do they? So put all that together. If you're going to pray about your life, and these six things are your life, and these six things don't change dramatically very often, that means you will pray about the same old things most of the time. That's not the problem. That's normal. The problem is we tend to say the same old things about the same old things, and that's boring. When prayer is boring, you don't you don't feel like praying, do you? You know it's going to be boring. And when you don't feel like praying, then you don't you don't pray. With any fervency. It's bloodless, it's heartless, it's it's spiritless. It's just duty prayer, obligatory prayer. We want to pray, but we know it's going to be boring, but so we try, but 5 to 7 minutes feels like an eternity. Our mind is wandering and so we conclude it must be me. Something's wrong with me, I guess. It shouldn't be that way. I know it shouldn't be that way, but frankly, it is. It always has been. Something's wrong with me. I'm a second-rate Christian. And I'm here to contend that no, if you have the Holy Spirit, and unless there's some huge sin issue in your life, you're not even willing to confess. You're not even fighting. If If there's that, then the problem is you. But assuming that you're genuinely, sincerely trying to follow Christ, the problem in prayer isn't you, rather it is your, your method. Well, what is the solution? Well, whatever it is, it must be fundamentally simple. Why? That's right. Otherwise, we won't do it. And who's we? You're right. Who's we? Everybody. Everybody where? Everywhere, right? God has children all over the world, doesn't he? From nine to 99, low IQs, high IQs, very little education, great deal of education, very few Christian privileges. I was on a mission trip once to the bush country of Kenya, and not even the pastor had a Bible. And then there are people like every person in this room who has many Christian privileges. I presume most of you go to churches where the Bible is preached. I know if you go here, you do. And if you've not looked for a church very often, you may not realize how difficult it is, even in a metro area the size of Houston, to find a church where the Bible is preached. But if someone didn't, well, I I do know plenty of churches around here, I can... I know of churches where the Bible is preached, and if a person is willing to drive, they can find a church where the Bible is preached. But imagine a person who lived in some remote area where uh, it it wasn't a reasonable distance to get to a church where the Bible is preached. Well, if they can turn on Christian radio, they can hear a John MacArthur. They can hear someone like that, though. Much of it may not be any good, but there's some Bible preaching on Christian radio. If they don't live near a Christian radio station, if they can get on the Internet, they can hear the best Bible preaching and teaching in the world 24-7, even by guys who are dead. And you have access to, to Christian books. I mean, I was just in the most you know, remarkable private theological library I've ever seen in my life this afternoon. You have access to things like that. You have Christian bookstores here, some of which sell Christian books. <laughs> but many of you, like here, you go to churches where, where books are available, Christian books are available for purchase right in the, in the church. And or you have a church library where the books can be loaned. And aside from that, there are people in your church who will loan you good Christian books. But if a person lived in a remote area where there's no good Christian bookstore nearby and their church didn't make Christian books available to them, if they can get online, they can have any Christian book they want tomorrow if they'll pay overnight shipping. And if they have an iPad or a Kindle, they can have in their hands in 30 seconds. And all of these things, all of these wonderful Christian privileges, are available to every person in this room. And so, if you, and I mean every born again person in this room, if you can't have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life with all those Christian advantages, then what about our brothers and sisters in the middle of India, or in the middle of China, or in the Sudan, who have none of those things? They have no Bible preaching church, they have no Christian radio, they have no Christian books but they're genuinely born again, are you prepared to say that because they don't have your Christian advantages, none of them can have meaningful, satisfying prayer lives? No. No one in this room would say that. No one in this room would say, well, Whitney, that's pretty tight logic, I guess, if, if I, with all my unparalleled Christian advantages, if I can't have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life, with well, all of these things, and frankly, I don't, well, pff, that rules out just about every Christian in the world because almost no Christian in the world has more Christian advantages than I do. None of you would say that. You say, look, I don't know about Christians anywhere else. I just know about me. Okay? I just know that for me, when I pray frankly, it's boring, so it must be me, and in fact, Now that you've put it the way you've put it, that prayer is still boring for me with all these Christian advantages I have, I'm worse off than I thought. I must be a third-rate Christian. I felt guilty before. I feel even worse now. Boy, am I glad I gave up my Monday night to come here for this. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thanks a lot, Gospel Coalition, for bringing this guy in here. I felt like a miserable Christian as it was. Now I feel even worse, and I paid to come do this. Now, this is good news, but I'm dwelling on this because I know there are people in this room, especially if you have the same amount or color of hair as I do, who perhaps have been praying for half a century, the way I've been talking about. Some of you have no memory of any other kind of prayer life than the one I've described. And so for me to stand up and in one less than two-hour period on a Monday night say there's a simple, permanent, biblical solution to a problem you've struggled with all your life? Well, that can almost sound like an infomercial. But it really is true, and I'm dwelling on this so that in hopes you will see the biblical logic of what I'm talking about. Do you see that? That anything God commands all of his children to do, anything he invites all of his children to do despite all the differences among them, it has to be fundamentally simple, right? It has to be. So if he invites all of his children to pray, for people to pray meaningfully has to be simple. Does the Apostle Paul say, God has not called many who are wise, many who are mighty, many who are noble. He tends to call ordinary folks therefore ordinary folks should be able to have a meaningful satisfying prayer life right do you see that you see that is consistent with the scripture therefore it must be doable for you to have a meaningful satisfying prayer life so what is this simple permanent biblical solution to this almost universal problem well here it is when you pray, oop, I missed one there. When you pray, it's right after this one, come on. Oop, there it was. Do you get it? <laughs> Can you go back to that one for me manually? Yeah, there it is. When you pray, pray through a passage of Scripture. Pray the Bible, especially a song. And no one went, <gasps> and that's good. If you'd not heard of anything like this, and I'm saying it's a simple, permanent, universal biblical solution to a universal problem, then you'd have a reason to be suspicious. And where most of us have heard something like this, it's when we've uh, been going through the prayers of the Apostle Paul, for example. And we'll see the prayers like at the end of chapter one or at the end of chapter three, and we'll say things like, you know, we should pray these prayers today. And we should. I'm here to contend we can pray the whole letter of Ephesians, not just the prayers in Ephesians. But I believe the best place in the Bible to start is the book of Psalms. So turn with me to the 23rd Psalm. And in the second session, every person will need a Bible. So if you didn't bring one, and it, it doesn't matter if it's digital or print, there are several on the floor uh, under the chairs or in the backs of the, uh, the, the chairs, So each person will need a Bible, no sharing, at least not in the second session. So look at the 23rd Psalm as an example. If I were going to do this today, maybe I did my Bible reading over in Romans or in Hebrews. But I said, all right, now I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray like I learned at that conference. I'm going to pray a psalm, and today I picked the 23rd Psalm. It could look something like this. I read the first line, the Lord is my shepherd, and I pray something like this, Lord, I thank you that you are my shepherd. You're a good shepherd. You've shepherded me all of my life. A great shepherd. Would you shepherd my family today? Guide them into the ways of God. Guard them from the ways of the world. Lead them not into temptation. Deliver them from evil. And I pray that you would make my children your sheep. May they love you as their shepherd, as I do. And I pray for our under-shepherd at the church. Please shepherd him. Shepherd our elders there, our leaders, as they shepherd us. Lord, would you shepherd me in this decision about my future? Do I make that job change or not? Do I make that move or not? Shepherd me, oh Lord, into your will. And then when nothing else comes to mind, you go to the next line, I shall not want. Lord, I thank you that I've never really been in want. I haven't missed too many meals. All that I have, all that I am is from you, Lord, and yet I know it pleases you that I bring my desires to you, so would you provide those finances that we need, those bills, that car for school? Or you know someone who is in want, and you pray for them. Then when your mind begins to wander a little bit, well, now you've got a place to come back to, the next line. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And frankly, what comes to mind may be nothing more than, Lord, I pray somehow you'd enable me to lie down and take a nap today. Or the idea of the green pastures reminds you of the feeding of God's flock in the green pastures of his word. So you pray for a ministry you have in teaching God's people or for someone who teaches you, some Bible teacher. When was the last time you prayed for that? Have you ever prayed you're a small group leader, Sunday school teacher in your life. But you're prompted to by this text. Then when nothing else comes to mind, you go on. He leads me beside still waters. Oh, Lord, do lead me in this decision about my future. I, I want to do what you want me to do, Lord. I'm just not sure what that is. Lead me and lead me beside still waters. Quiet the waters in my anxious heart about this decision. Quiet the waters in our home. Quiet the waters at work wherever. Waters need to be made quiet. And then when you can't think of anything else to say, you look down and read, He restores my soul. Oh, Lord, you might pray, I come to you so spiritually dry today. Please restore to me the joy of your salvation. Or perhaps you think of that person you're trying to share the gospel with down the street or work, and you pray God would restore their soul from darkness to light, from death to life. And On and on you would go through this passage until either A, you run out of time or B, you run out of psalm. And if you run out of psalm before you run out of time, you know what you do? And pay attention, this is high-level seminary stuff here. You ready? Here's what you do. You got that? Need to repeat that. Jeff, any questions? Just turn the page. A couple, three of my former students here tonight and have an assignment where once during the semester they're, they're required to spend four consecutive hours alone with God. First day of class, when I mention that, you should see them go, what am I going to do for four hours? But after I've taught this and taught what to do about Bible intake, most of them spend the entire four hours just alternating between those two. And having taught this class often more than once a semester for 21 years, nearly every student every semester for 21 years reports that they spend more than four hours, not because they have to, but because they're enjoying it so much. They go out and walk and they pray and they just keep turning the page and they never run out of anything to say. And best of all, let's circle back to where we started, it's unlike any prayer they ever prayed in their life. Pray the Bible, and you never again say the same old things about the same old things. You just go through it, line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to mind. Even if, now listen very carefully, because what I'm about to say is potentially the most misunderstandable thing I will say tonight. When I say that you talk to God about whatever comes to mind, even if what comes to mind has nothing to do with the text. Now, let me defend that from the text. What does the text of Scripture tell us to pray about? Everything, right? So everything that comes to mind as you're looking at the Bible is something you ought to pray about, right? So the text of Scripture tells us to pray about everything. Now, I know Jeff has taught a class here that many of you have attended on hermeneutics. It's one of the most important classes at our seminary. That we require it's about interpreting the Bible correctly and it's a very important class for those of you who were in his class or know that word may have had some red flags go up already let me explain myself in almost every other time of coming to the Bible I can think of our first priority is to understand what does the Bible say and what does it mean and you can get that wrong but when you're doing Bible study your that's your first priority maybe you've got commentaries and other tools and other helps and only secondarily Are you praying? Every once in a while, you may pray, Lord, what does this mean? Lord, how do I apply this? But your primary activity is study. Oh, you can get that wrong. If in preaching here yesterday, if I would preached on the 23rd Psalm and got to that verse that says, he restores my soul, and I said, folks, that verse is about evangelism. That's about God restoring the souls of lost people from darkness to light, from death to life, as I illustrated in prayer a few minutes ago. It would have been sin if I said that. Because that's not what that verse means, and I know it. But that's not what we're doing. With what I'm advocating tonight, our primary activity is what? It's prayer. And we're praying while secondarily we're glancing at the Bible. And I'm saying that what we're doing is whatever comes to mind when we glance at the Bible, turn it Godward. Because not only does the Bible tell us to pray about everything... But, but let me illustrate my point with perhaps a couple of extreme illustrations. Suppose as you're looking at the Bible, sinful thoughts come to mind, which sometimes they do. Well, you know that's not what the verse is teaching, right? So what should you do with those sinful thoughts? Pray about them, right? Confess them. Turn them Godward. Suppose you're going through that psalm. You're praying through that psalm that says, Oh, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? And your friend, Mark, comes to mind. What should you do? Pray for Mark. You know that verse isn't about Mark. It was written 4,000 years before Mark was born, but pray for Mark. So that's what I mean. Whatever comes to mind, turn it Godward. What we're doing here is taking words that have already originated in the heart and mind of God, circulating them through our hearts and minds back to God so that His words become the wings of our prayers. Sometimes you're actually, literally, praying the Bible. Sometimes you're praying thoughts suggested by the Bible. But whatever comes to mind, turn it Godward because the Bible teaches us everything that comes to mind should be turned Godward. We're to pray about everything. But I have enough confidence in the Word and in the Spirit of God that if people would pray this way, their prayers would be far more biblical than they ever would be just making up their own prayers, and that's what people do. So if you have any concern that people are going to uh, pray this way and come up with some weird doctrine and infect the church, first of all, in all the years I've been doing this, I've never known that to happen. Second, I will acknowledge it could happen, but if it does, then it's a responsibility of the spiritual leadership to gently correct that. And third, let me reiterate that I believe people's prayers would be far more biblical praying this way than they would be otherwise. If you're concerned about people misinterpreting the Bible and praying incorrectly, I guarantee you they will do that, making up their own prayers. I remember a prayer meeting I was in in my first church, and a man was praying Oh, Lord, make us free in the spirit. I'm saying amen. And he added, and free in the flesh. And I almost reached over and hit him when he said that. That's our problem, man. That's our problem. Don't pray for that. You don't pray that if you pray the Bible. When you're praying the Bible, your prayers are shaped by the Bible and informed by the Bible. Far more. That, That doesn't happen when you make up your own prayers. You just go through it line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to mind. Anybody can do that. It's that simple. If you come to a verse and you don't understand it, fine, go on to the next verse. If you understand the next verse perfectly, but it doesn't prompt anything to pray about, fine, go on to the next verse. Nothing says you have to pray over every verse, You'll come to those imprecatory psalms. Oh, Lord, dash their children's heads against the rock and smash their teeth in their mouth and cause them to dissolve like the snail into the slime. Well, there may be somebody at work you'd kind of like to pray that for. It's sort of hard to do with a pure motive, isn't it? No, I don't think we put people's names in there anymore. I think ultimately we put all the Psalms in the mouth of Jesus. Someday he's going to do far worse and just smash the teeth in the mouth of his lifelong unrepentant enemies, isn't he? I think we can pray those Psalms. Ultimately, in the imprecatory Psalms, we're saying, "Uh, Lord, I'm on your side, and I want all unrighteousness, all injustice to be crushed forever, all rebellion against you to be destroyed forever. But let's say that in real life, Thursday, You're trying this, and you come to one of those imprecatory psalms, and you say, now that Whitney guy at the conference said we could pray through these kind of passages. I forget what he said. Skip the whole section. Nothing says you have to pray over every verse. Nothing says you have to finish the psalm. I was doing this once out in Santa Rosa, California, and gave people a chance to try it. One woman prayed 25 minutes and never got past the Lord is my shepherd five words. She prayed 25 minutes. Now, do you really think the Lord was up there going, you didn't finish that song? (laughs) No, I think he was delighted that she could find so much delight in him as her shepherd, she could talk to him 25 minutes about being her shepherd. But the next day, she might have been in Psalm 22, which has 31 verses. And in 31 verses, maybe only half a dozen things came to mind to pray about. Fine, turn the page. You really can't do it wrong. Now that's meant to be an encouragement, pastoral encouragement for people who are fearful that they, maybe they don't understand the Bible very well, or they're brand new to the faith. Look, if you led someone to Christ today who had never been to church in their life, they had not read one verse of the Bible in their life, and they were here tonight, they could do this. The one who knows the Bible best can do this. The one who knows the Bible least can do this. The most spiritually mature, the least spiritually mature. A six-year-old who can read. Anyone can do this. So someone who never read the Bible before, and they try this tonight on the 23rd Psalm, and they read, the Lord is my shepherd, and say, uh, Lord, shepherd me as I grow as a Christian. He got it, Right? He got it. What better way to teach people to pray than to pray over it verse by verse? And what better way to learn the true meaning of a text if you don't have any other tools, just your English Bible the, the, or Spanish Bible, the Holy Spirit, and you? Is there any better way to learn the true meaning of the text than to pray over it verse by verse? Let me say again, I have enough confidence in the Word and in the Spirit of God. That if people would pray this way, their prayers would be far more biblical than they ever would be making up their own prayers, and that's what people do. When they pray this way, their prayers are shaped by the Bible. Their prayers are taught. They're, they're taught as they're reading and praying the Bible. It only leads to good, to edification, to growth, and to better praying. Less boring praying. And I believe the Psalms are the best place in Scripture. To do this, Now, let me quickly introduce something to you that's not original with me. It's called the Psalms of the Day, and it's based on the idea that we have 150 psalms and 30 days in the month, which divides out to five times. Let me put it this way. If you read five different psalms every day for a whole month, at the end of the month, you have read the whole book of Psalms. Well, that's a great practice. I know people who do that. But that's not really what I'm advocating. What I'm suggesting is that you take 30 seconds to quickly scan five Psalms and just pick one of them to pray through. Now, let me tell you why I'm injecting a little bit of math into your prayer life here because some of you is like, math, you know. (laughs) Learning this, learning this helps to avoid this. Oh, I'm so sleepy this morning. Oh, good night. But I'm going to try to pray one of these Psalms like I learned at that conference. All right, here we go. All right, here we go. No, I don't like that one. All right, here we go. No, I used that one the other day. Are oh, you already going downhill, right? You're, you're already losing momentum. That's the last thing we need in our devotional life. We need all the help we can get, right? This helps. You know why it helps? It gives you a place to go. Every day, you don't have to guess. It's like having a marker in your Bible for the place you pick up to read. It's the same thing. It gives you a place to go. And the hardest part of this is step one, what day is it? Okay. Now, I know today's not the 15th, but I can't change this slide every time I do this. So, pretend with me today is the 15th, okay? On the 15th of the month, take a wild guess what your first psalm is. Brilliant. You guys are going to get this. Whatever the day of the month is, that's your first psalm. So, if it's the 15th in this example, Psalm 15 is your first psalm. Now, to get the next one, you add 30. Well, where in the world do I get 30? 30 days in the month. So 30 more is 45. There's your second Psalm. See you with me? The day of the month plus 30. How many Psalms are we looking for? We're looking for five, so just keep it up. So 30 more is 75, and 30 more is 105, and 30 more is 135. So those five numbers in gold are the five Psalms of the day. Whenever the day of the month is, The 15th, whether it's the 15th of November, the 15th of December, the 15th of January. If it's the 15th of the month, those five are always the five Psalms of the day. And you take 30 seconds to quickly scan those five, and you just pick the one that stands out. You might pick Psalm 15 this time, and you might pick Psalm 15 on December 15th. That's that's fine. You're not going to remember what you prayed, you know, 30 days ago. And if it stands out to you again, that's fine. And the second benefit is, not only does it give you a place to go, but over the years, it exposes you systematically to all 150 psalms on a regular basis, and they're all equally inspired. They're not all equally easy to pray through, but they're all equally inspired, and this method will regularly expose you to all 150 psalms. All right, class, as a professor, I'm going to exercise my privilege here and give you a pop quiz. What are the psalms of the day today? Why nine? Today's the ninth. Brilliant. What's next? Why 39? Add 30. Brilliant. What's next? 69? 99? Right, now, some of you hesitated on that one. <laughs> you go up to three digits, it gets a little harder, but it's good for your math as well as your prayer life. That's right. Today, the Psalms are nine. 39, 69, 99, 129. What do we do on the 31st of the month? Very good. I usually get smart aleck answers from my students, like "Well, they take a day off or something, but on the 31st, use Psalm 119. Now that's going to come up on the 29th because on the 29th, the Psalms of the day are 29, at 30, 59, at 30, 89, at 30. Here it is, 119, at 30, 149. But even if you use it on the 29th, Uh, you'll probably have plenty left over for the 31st. And so I'm advocating, take the day of the month, go through five, and just pick the one that stands out. And it is uncanny how one of those five will put into expression what's looking for expression in your heart. Every day, one of those five will put into expression what's looking for expression in your heart. And I believe the Psalms are the best place in Scripture, from which to pray Scripture. And it has to do with the original purpose and usage of the Psalms, which is what? As songs, that's right. In fact, in Hebrew, the word Psalms, it means the book of praises. It was the song book of Israel, right? Now, where did we get the Psalms from? Now, the three year old class could answer this. Where do we get the Psalms from, class? God, that's right, very good. Psalms come from God. Well, duh, everybody knows that, right? But what most people wouldn't know is what was the original purpose of the Psalms? There were songs, songs of praise to God, right? So the Psalms were from God to be given in return to God. It's as though God said, I want you to praise me, not because I'm an egomaniac. I want you to praise me because you will praise what you love most. And there is nothing more praiseworthy than I am. And if you love me, you'll want to praise me, but you don't know how to praise me. I'm invisible to you. You know nothing about me unless I reveal it to you. What is acceptable praise? What kind of God am I? You don't know unless I tell you. So here, sing this. This is true praise. This is acceptable praise to me. That's what the Psalms are. God gave the Psalms so that we would give the Psalms back to God. Not only in the Old Testament times, but twice in the New Testament, we're commanded to sing psalms, right? Makes sense that there are no words in all the world that would nourish our hearts in the worship of God like the only words in all the world God inspired for us to sing explicitly. For that reason, because it's the only book of the Bible inspired by God for the expressed purpose of being reflected to God, I believe the psalms are the best place in Scripture from which to pray Scripture. All the books of the Bible are equally inspired, but the Psalms were inspired for a unique purpose, to be reflected to God. And so, I almost never go anywhere but the Psalms when I pray the Bible. Someone said the Psalms are like a little Bible. Every doctrine in the Bible is in the Psalms, either in the bud or in the flower, but they're all there. Someone else said there's a Psalm for every sigh of the soul. With 150 psalms, the entire range of human emotions is to be found there. God not only inspired them, we have the miracle of preservation. God has preserved 150 psalms for these thousands of years. And it's because every believer goes through what's in the psalms. And no matter where you are on a given day, whether you're exhilarated with God or you're disappointed with God, whether you're content with God or you're angry at God or angry at enemies or you're questioning God or you're thankful or wherever it is, you quickly scan five psalms, it's uncanny how one of them will put into expression what's looking for expression in your heart. But quickly before we take our break, the second best place in the Bible, I believe, from which to pray the Bible are the New Testament letters. So look at First Thessalonians chapter 2 as a quick example here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, I chose this passage because I'm confident that unlike the 23rd Psalm, which just about everybody knows, most of us here aren't as familiar with what's in 1 Thessalonians 2. And so I wanted to give like a a real-life example. I could cherry-pick easy, well-known passages like Psalm 23, and then when you get home and try this, you think, well, this is not as easy. But it raises the question, if... Psalms are the best place in Scripture to do this. What would be the real-life reason a person might ever decide to pray through 1 Thessalonians 2? What do you think? In real life, what do you think would be the the reason that would prompt a person to pray through 1 Thessalonians 2? Don't make this too hard, does that? Yeah, exactly. It's where they're reading. They're doing their daily Bible reading in 1 Thessalonians. Today they read chapter 2. And they said, you know what? This really ministered to me. I want to go back and pray through what I just read through. I don't have much time here. I don't want to go somewhere else. I want to go back and pray through what I just read through. That's probably the reason a person might find himself or herself praying through 1 Thessalonians 2. If I were to pray through this passage today, it would have looked like this. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Oh, Lord, I pray that my coming to this conference tonight would not be in vain. I don't want to waste their time. I don't want to waste my time. I pray that no one will walk out of those doors tonight saying, well, that was in vain. That was a waste of time. May there be much lasting fruit. Verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi's, you know. Stop. What two things stand out? Suffered, shamefully treated. Well, maybe that's you. And you pray about your suffering. Or you know someone who is suffering or being shamefully treated, maybe someone in your family, your church, a neighbor, one of our persecuted brothers from around the world. This prompts you to pray about that. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God amid, in the midst of much conflict. Oh, God, give me the boldness to speak the gospel to that guy at work or down the street despite uh, any conflict that's going on in their hearts. I pray for Christians in those persecuted places or missionaries there despite the conflict that they have with the government or with false religions to have the boldness to speak the gospel. Verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. And maybe the idea of error there reminds you of someone you know who's coming under error. Someone you know who goes to a big old basketball arena Sunday and under, under an error teaching there. You pray about that. Or the person being tempted with impurity or your own temptations to impurity or any attempt to deceive. And you know someone, maybe some young, young woman is being deceived by a young man or vice versa. You pray for that. If you prayed like that, how long do you think it'd take you to pray through 1 Thessalonians chapter (laughs) 2? Quite a while, right? But you wouldn't run out of anything to say, would you? And let's go back to where we started. That prayer would be unlike any prayer you ever prayed in your life, wouldn't it? Pray the Bible. You never again say the same old things about the same old things. You don't have to try to remember anything. You don't need any other help. You just open your Bible and you talk to God about what you see in his word and you don't run out of anything to say. And it's unlike any prayer you've ever prayed. And like my students, if you have four hours, well, this method expands to four hours. You just keep turning the page. Most days, what is available to most of us is more closer to four minutes than four hours, right? Well, this still works. You just don't get as far. But you go through it line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to mind. If it's four minutes or four hours, you won't run out of anything to say. and It will be unlike any prayer you ever prayed in your life. Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. One last example before our break. Let's go to John chapter 5. Whoops, I didn't realize the whole thing was up. Could you bring that back up, please? Go to John chapter 5, and let's look at see what it's like in a narrative passage of Scripture. Now, what's in a narrative passage? Story, yeah, this is the biggest chunk of our Bible, isn't it? So much of the Gospels, the book of Acts, all those Old Testament stories. If we're going to learn how to pray the Bible, we have to know how to pray through a narrative passage. But folks, there's one big difference between praying through a narrative passage and what we've done thus far. Thus far, we've looked at the text microscopically. The Lord is my shepherd. Five words, one woman prayed 25 minutes. We saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, even between the commas, we saw matter for prayer. And I forgot to say that the reason why the New Testament letters are the second best place in which to pray Scripture is because you get so much crammed in almost every verse. Virtually every verse is designed to teach something. And in, in one verse, we saw, like I said, in between the commas. So there's so much pressed in almost every verse, it's easy to pray through a, a New Testament letter. But a narrative passage is different. You have to back up and, and get the big picture. Because if you try to pray microscopically over a narrative passage, well, it could look like this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Well... If you had to come up with something, it might be about feasting or feasting too much, but it wouldn't be easy, would it? No, probably what you're going to do is back up and look at all uh, nine verses in this story, and you're going to pray about the big, broad brush strokes that are there. Because see, in a narrative passage, you usually have these stage-setting verses after which comes the punchline. It may only be the punchline you'll pray about in a narrative passage, not the details setting the stage. Any detail that prompts something, you pray about it. But you have a little bit different expectation than you do in a a New Testament letter where every verse you know the intention is to be teaching something. But in a story, it's setting up the main teaching. But once having done this, I'm confident you can open up to any part of your Bible and pray about it. All right, let's take a a 10-minute break. Now, and uh, we're going to try to hold you to this because of uh, we got to get out of here on time. So, come back in your seats in 10 minutes. Ready? Break. All right, now for the most important part of the night. You're about to do this. So, as people are coming in here, uh, I want you to find a psalm. So why every person needs a Bible. No sharing. So if you again, if you didn't have one, you can use one on your phone or iPad. That, that's fine. Doesn't have to be a print Bible. But if you don't have one, under many of the seats or in the back of many of the seats, there are some Bibles. So each person needs one. Is there anyone who doesn't have a Bible? I think we can find some extras if we need to. Any person, any person who doesn't have a Bible. Okay. Uh, so find a Psalm right now. It doesn't have to be one of the Psalms of the day. Just find a favorite. You're going to pray through the 23rd Psalm or 27th Psalm or 37th Psalm. Those are uh, easy to pray through usually. So just find one. I'm going to give you a short uh, few minutes to do this. So when I say go, I'm going to ask it to be no talking or whispering because in a room of this size and everyone's trying to be quiet, if someone whispers in the back corner, we'll hear it up on the front row and vice versa. So um, I'm going to ask it to be uh, no talking. And then after a very short few minutes... Uh, of course, when I come down, you can kill the microphone. When I come back up here, uh, you can uh, turn it on again. And um, or actually, in this case, I may I may come right back. I may be on the ground level. Is that okay? Will I get feedback if I'm down there? Okay. Uh, so uh, I'll call us back after a few minutes. Questions? Okay. Ready? Break. But how did it go? Why oh, was it great? Wasn't boring. Hallelujah. All right. Very good. Someone else. How'd it go? Why? Great. And it was easy, right? All right. He said it's easier to think about things you normally didn't think about. Let me. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands on something. I'm not going to call on anybody, okay? So don't be afraid to raise your hand. How many of you, likewise, prayed about things you normally wouldn't pray about? Can I see your hands? You normally wouldn't pray about. Was there anything you normally wouldn't pray about you prayed about? That's just about everybody, it seems. Yeah, you pray the Bible. You pray about things that you'll be prompted to pray from the text you wouldn't think to pray about if you had a prayer list as big as the Houston phone directory. Just never would cross your mind. I ask you to raise your hands again, though. I won't call on you. How many of you prayed about things you normally do want to pray about? Again, it's just about everybody. That's your life, right? So, those things that you normally want to pray about will come oozing out of any text. If you had chosen another psalm, you still would have prayed about many of the same things. That's your life. They're going to come out of any text. But you will also pray about things you wouldn't pray about. You'll pray about familiar things in new ways, right? And you'll pray about new things you normally wouldn't pray about. Excellent. Someone else? How'd it go? okay? He said, when her mind did wander, and that will happen. Your mind will wander. You're going to be tired. If you pray at length, your mind will wander. But the difference is now you have something to come back to, the next verse. And that next verse is not the same thing. Normally, when your mind wanders, and you think, oh, my mind is wandering, I need to come back. And you come back to something you've said many, many times before, right? The same old thing. It's easy for your mind to wander again. But now you come back to something brand new, And it's less likely your mind will quickly wander again. Good. Someone else. Continual reminder that God will answer your prayer. In essence, it's a more God-centered way in general, isn't it? It's a more God-centered way of praying. And that's a good thing, isn't it? It's not just, Lord, here I am with my list again of things I want you to do for me. It's a more God-centered way. You may find yourself praising God more but it's a more God-centered way, even though we pray about the things we normally want to pray about. As she said, sometimes I pray about something that I'm not sure that it's true, or we might add, or that it's God's will, right? But when you're praying the Bible, you know that it's true, and can you have any greater assurance you're praying the will of God than when you're praying the Word of God? Now, it's possible we can misinterpret something from the Bible and actually be praying the words of Scripture and not be praying God's will because we're praying it selfishly or misunderstanding the Bible. But can you have any greater assurance you're praying the will of God than when you're praying the Word of God? Yeah, if you're reading, you're studying the Bible, you're interpreting, you're going to teach it, yeah, you need to know what it says. But for this, you don't really feel the pressure to have to do that. You can just go on. And sometimes you'll know exactly what it means, but it just doesn't bring anything to your mind to pray about. Fine, just go on. And that will happen a lot, but that's a good thing, isn't it? Probably most of you had other verses come to mind, which is good because that's the word speaking to the word. So you're you're taught by the Bible as you're praying the Bible. Other verses will come to mind, and so that's good. When we say the same old things about the same old things, we're not being taught by the Bible. Very good. Someone else in the back. A lot of things to be confessed. Yeah. Now, many of you will know, and I've taught it before, and there's a grain of more than a grain of truth in it, the, the, the old acrostic for prayer, the A-C-T-S acrostic, begin your prayer with A, adoration, then go to C, confession, then T, thanksgiving, and S, supplication. And that's good as far as it goes, but you know, after a while, that becomes the same old thing, doesn't it? Well, A, adoration, I'll begin my prayer with adoration, how am I going to adore the Lord today? Um well, I guess I'll adore him the same way I did yesterday. Because who's got the time or the creative energy to think of new ways to adore the Lord every day? Good news. You don't have to think of new ways to adore the Lord. He's given us 150 chapters of how he wants to be adored. That's how he wants to be adored. And it also reminds me, sometimes people say, well, what about the model prayer? What about the Lord's prayer? Well, if you pray the Bible you will pray the elements of the model prayer. And we know that's, that's why we call it the model prayer. It's given to us though we, we are free to pray it verbatim. We know that's not the main purpose of it because the, the apostles who heard it never repeat it in the Bible. There are many other prayers after the Lord's Prayer, both in Acts and in the New Testament letters, and they never repeat the Lord's Prayer. They pray new prayers. So, it is a model in that the elements of the Lord's prayer are to be the kinds of things should comprise our prayers. You pray the Bible, you will pray those things. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pray. You pray the Bible, you're going to hallow his name. You're going to be more God-centered in your praying. You're going to praise his name. You're going to confess. Forgive us our debts. You're going to pray that like you did when you pray the Bible you may not pray every element every day, but in general, you're going to be praying the things Jesus said to pray when you pray the Bible. Very good. Someone else? Hmm. Powerful reminder of the characteristics of God. Once again, it's a much more God-centered way of praying. We come to God to pray, and instead of just bringing our, our list, we're reminded of who we're praying to. That makes a world of difference. Anyone else? Yeah, it will be not only more uh, more God-centered, more Christocentric as well. I mean, we'll see Christ in the Psalms, in the Scriptures. So, once again, we're pointed to Christ, we're taught by the Scriptures, and that just doesn't happen as much when we make up our own prayers. Yeah, Yeah, it's uncanny. If you'll take five Psalms, quickly scan them, one of them it seems will put into expression exactly where you are. It's amazing how that happens, but that's why we have the Psalms. They are reflective of the human experience, and you look at five of them, one of them is going to reflect somewhere in there your experience right now. It's amazing. Well, I'd like to have a lot more time to hear from you. These are very encouraging testimonies, but if you ever teach this to anyone else, there's two things you must do. You may not have as much time as I've had tonight. You may only have 30 minutes on a Wednesday night or a one hour Sunday school class, but there's two things you must do if you ever teach this to anyone else. First and more, most important, give them a chance to try it right then. That's why I said at the beginning tonight if you can't stay for the whole thing, stay for the 10 minutes after the break because that's the most important part. Because once you've done it, you never forget how, right? You don't need any notes to remember how to do this again. Once you've done it, it's like riding a bicycle. You'll never forget how. And furthermore, if I hadn't given you that 10 minutes to actually try it tonight, you would have walked out saying, that's a good idea. That's a real good idea. I'll have to think about that. Yeah, I'll have to think about that. I'll have to try that someday, and you never would. But because of that seven minutes. I gave you seven minutes. Some of you are hooked. Some of you will never again pray the same. You'll never again say the same old things about the same old things, primarily because of that seven minutes. So give your people a chance to try it right then. I've had to do this before, the whole thing in five minutes. (laughs) I gave them one minute to pray. And second thing I encourage you to do is give them opportunity for feedback right after that just like we've been doing the last few minutes. Because I know exactly what you're going to say. You'll say the same thing that every group has ever said. And you did. And if you don't believe me, those of you who have the book, you look in that section of the book where in the book, I'd say, put the book down and pray. (laughs) Here's the most important part of the whole book. Put the book down and actually go try this. And then after that chapter, I talk about the kinds of things people normally say after they do this. And everything you said is in the book. So I knew what you were going to say, but it's much more refreshing to hear you say it, fresh off the experience, than for me to just keep talking about it. And when each of you spoke, you should have seen other people in here nodding their heads. Yeah, that was my experience too. So give people a chance to try it right then. So what have we learned here tonight? We've learned that when we pray, let's say that this prayer request is some typical prayer, like you're praying for your family every day or whatever. We said that we tend to say the same old things about the same old things, right? We come in at the same old gray colorless ways. Maybe that prayer is, Lord, bless my family today. Bless my family. But now we've learned that instead of saying, bless my family, we can pray through Psalm 23, and it comes out as, Lord, shepherd my family. And there's something about that shepherding imagery that just transforms the prayer, right? Just something about that biblical language energizes that prayer in a brand new way. The next day, you might pray that they would manifest 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. The next day, you might pray, Lord, uh, I, I pray that my children would become uh, meditators. Can you advance that for me on the Word of God? Because you're praying from Psalm 1. Isn't that a wonderful thing to pray for Psalm 1? But would you ever in your life pray that for someone if you weren't praying through Psalm 1? The next day you might pray that they would manifest the fruit of the Spirit. The next day you might pray that they would sense the presence of God wherever they go. It's still the same prayer, bless my family. But every day it's a different prayer because you're praying that through a different passage. Every day at the seminary, and Jeff, I think I left my Bible down there. I'm going to need that. Thank you. Every day at the seminary, several times a day, open the class in Scripture, reading and prayer, and it's basically the same prayer, Lord, please bless the class. How many ways can you think of to say bless the class, especially when you have to say it several times every day? But I teach my classes how to pray the Bible and teach them the Psalms of the day. And so uh, the uh, last person into the class every day has the privilege of telling all the rest of us what the Psalms of the day are, which accomplishes two things. Number one, it teaches them the Psalms of the day. And number two, gets them there on time, right? Nobody wants to be the guy, as Justin sometimes was, (laughs) to have to tell all the rest of us what the Psalms of the day are. And then I pray, Lord, bless the class through that Psalm. So if I pray, bless the class through Through Psalm 23, it comes out as, Lord, shepherd us in this class today. If I pray, bless the class through Psalm 51, it comes out as, Lord, forgive us for not always applying our minds to our studies as we ought help us to do that today. If it's, bless the class through Psalm 139, it comes out as, Lord, we acknowledge your presence here in Norton 195. You're the teacher in this classroom. Teach us today. It's the same prayer, bless the class, but bless the class through a different psalm is a different prayer every day, and I don't have to think of anything. I don't need to remember anything, need any other helps. Just need to open the Bible, pray the Bible. Now, we're going to wrap this up here. Uh, here's how you do this with a group. You want to go ahead and advance that to those three bullet points there. Thank you. I, this is in your outline. I really don't have time to talk about this, but let me just say that don't try this. um with a group until the, in, the group has tried it individually. In other words, if I had started tonight at 7 o'clock say, folks, we're going to talk about praying the Bible tonight. Let's start off by praying through a passage together as a group. It would have been a disaster. If we tried it now, it would go a little better. Why? Because you've all done it privately. You have some idea then of what it would look like to do it collectively. Uh. Group prayer is always a little more difficult anyway, but don't try it as a group until the group has done this as individuals. And you can think of these three as good, better, and best. And this group may be as small as your family or Bible study class or it can be a church wide prayer meeting. But the first one is good, it can work. You assign everyone a verse. You take the first verse, you take the second verse, you take the third verse, you take the fourth verse. Jeff, you take the fifth verse. Okay, let's go. And we start going, and it's going great till we get to Jeff. And Jeff's verse is, Lord, dash your children's heads against the rock and smash your teeth in their mouth. And he's going, what do I do with that? And so he's embarrassed in front of the whole group. So it can work or it can backfire. Or the second one is, uh, you as the group leader, read the psalm aloud or give people a chance to read it silently and then say, all right, having finished this psalm now, I want as many of you who are willing to pray out loud, and I want you to begin by reading the verse from the psalm that impressed you the most, and start your prayer from that verse. And that can work great until and unless their prayer sort of veers away from that verse, and then it starts sounding like the same old things about the same old things. So perhaps the best method is the third one there. Just pick and choose. From the psalm you've chosen, just throw out one at a time as needed when it's quiet, Phrases that anybody can understand, anybody could pray from. So I might start the prayer and say, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, and then see who prays based on that. Lord, shepherd this person, shepherd that person, shepherd our church in this way. And then when it's quiet, I throw out an easy one again. I shall not want. Anybody understands that. Just about anybody could pray from that. And I'm not going to throw out phrases like Lord, dash your children's heads against the rock and things like that. Most people will go, go. Oh, You know, what do I do with that? So, I have my students read the biography of George Mueller. We just discussed this on Thursday. Perhaps the greatest man of prayer and faith since the times of the New Testament. He lived almost the entirety of the 1800s in Bristol, England. He uh, had four internationally known ministries in his day, but today he's best known for one, his orphanages. In 1834, when he first opened his orphanage, there were very few in all of England. In fact, there are only, uh, only about 3,500 uh, children in orphanages in the whole country. There were more than twice that many under age eight in prison in England than in orphanages. But he began to feed, clothe, house, and educated orph- educate orphans as many as 2,000 at a time, over 10,000 in his lifetime never making his needs known to anyone except to God in prayer, and by implication through his annual reports. At the end of each year, he'd put out an annual report saying, on June 25th, we had no food, we prayed, here's how God provided. On August 19th, we had no money, here's how we prayed, God provided. And he knew that if people read that, they would be motivated to give, and that's how the ministry survived, and they knew that. But he didn't directly ask people for money nor announce what the needs were. And God funneled over half a billion dollars in today's money through his hands. Over 50,000 specific recorded answers to prayer in his journals, over 30,000 of which he said were answered the same day or the same hour that he prayed. But George Mueller said that for 10 years into his life of faith, as he called it, not when he's a nobody, he's already known around the world as the great man of prayer and faith and God hears the prayers and answers uh, for the orphans. For 10 years, he said, it was his habit that after getting dressed, he would pray until breakfast. And it sometimes took him 30 minutes to an hour before he really got into the spirit of prayer. In other words, before he felt like praying. So he said for 15 minutes, for half an hour, for an hour, he would try to pray. And he would try to pray and he'd suffer from much wandering of mind. But only after that would he really begin to feel like praying. So what do we do? Five minutes, seven minutes, that feels like an eternity. Our minds are wandering half the time, but he would stay with it. It might take him half an hour. It might take him an hour, but he would stay with it till he felt like praying. And only then, he said, did he really begin to pray until he made one slight alteration in his prayer life. And what do you think that was? What you just did. He started praying the Bible, and he said, once I did that, I scarcely ever suffered as I did before. And that great hero to so many of us, and Jeff and I have talked about Charles Spurgeon probably 20 times in the last two days. Charles Spurgeon said somewhere, we ought to pray when we feel like it. Well, I began by saying tonight, we don't pray because we don't feel like it. But Spurgeon said, we ought to pray when we feel like it because it would be terrible to miss such an opportunity. But he went on to say, and we ought to pray when we don't feel like it because it would be terrible to remain in such a condition. Why can't I think of cool things like that? (laughs) Reality is you get up in the morning, let's say seven o'clock, you don't feel like praying, cheer up, you're normal. You know why you don't feel like praying? You're sleepy. You've been dead to the world for the last six or seven hours. I mean, I run into door frames when I get up. I almost never feel like praying when I go to pray. But the good news is this, you are not subject to those feelings. God said to Jeremiah, is not my word like a hammer and a fire? My word is like a hammer that breaks hard hearts. It's like a hammer that melts, a fire that melts cold hearts. God says his word is like a fire. You get up at 7 o'clock, you don't feel like praying, cheer up, you're normal. But the good news is, you can take the fire of God's word and plunge it into your cold heart, so that by 7:05, just like by 8:25 tonight, you begin to feel like praying, and it's so easy. And having done this virtually every day since the first of March of 1985, I can testify that I almost never feel like praying when I go to pray. But having done it almost every day since then, I can testify there is nothing in all my devotional life that more quickly and consistently kindles my consistently cold heart like praying the Bible. In closing, I want you to look at Acts chapter 4, and as you do, let me tell you about these other two passages. On the cross... Jesus said seven brief things, as you know, brief because he had been beaten nearly to death, brief because he was so thoroughly dehydrated, brief because uh, his entire body weight was sagging on those three spikes, and for him to get enough breath in his diaphragm to speak, he had to push up on that spike in his feet. And that was so so terribly painful that they would speak very briefly and then sink back down. And in order to hasten their death, they would break their legs, and they couldn't push up, and they would asphyxiate on the cross. And indeed, that's how the Romans hastened the death of the two thieves. But the longest of the seven things that Jesus said was, in Matthew 27 there, My God, my God, why have you Forsaken me, which is the first verse of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is prophetic about what? The crucifixion. There are more details about the physical aspects of crucifixion in Psalm 22 than all four gospels put together. Two of the four gospels simply say they took him and crucified him, period, and go on. Most everything said about the cross is about things happening around the cross. What the Romans did, what the Jews did, what the thieves were saying. Very little about the physical aspects of crucifixion. Almost everything we know about it is from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, he says, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. One of the seven things he did say was, I thirst. All my bones are out of joint, Psalm 22 says. When they would drop their victims into place on the cross as it would fall into the ground there, often their bones would pop out of the sockets. I can count all my bones. The Romans would crucify their victims unclothed. There are two multi-sentence statements prophesied in Psalm 22 that were said verbatim at the foot of the cross. I'm convinced Jesus prayed through Psalm 22 on the cross, Now, to some degree, that's speculation, but we know this. We know he prayed the first verse. We know why he spoke briefly, and because he was literally fulfilling Psalm 22 at that moment. I think it's reasonable to assume that when he sank back down, he continued to pray through Psalm 22. And at the end, he said, Into your hands I commit my spirit, from Psalm 32. Jesus prayed the psalms. And in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23, Peter and John had been arrested, had been threatened. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and went back to the church and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, Many scholars believe that's a quotation from Psalm 146. Whether it is or not, go on. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The second half of verse 25, all of verse 26, is from where? Psalm 2. This is the place that says after they prayed, the place was shaken. The early church prayed the psalms. George Mueller, maybe the greatest man of prayer and faith since the early church, prayed the psalms. Jesus prayed the psalms. Why not you? Let's pray. Lord, as the psalmist said, or to you, all men come. We come to you and we ask you what the disciples asked Jesus. Lord, teach us to pray. Our cry is, Lord, teach us to pray like George Mueller. Teach us to pray like the early church. Teach us to pray like Jesus. We ask this in his name and for your glory. Amen.